0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes and Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I just realized that I have been reading Richard Russo for decades. And that's kind of a shocking thought for me. But Somebody's Fool is a new novel in the North Bath series. So remember Nobody's Fool, remember Paul Newman, remember all of that. Everybody's Fool. Richard, you took 23 years between Nobody's Fool and Everybody's Fool and now here we are 7 years later with Somebody's Fool. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we back? I mean, I had a great deal of pleasure reading this book, but you went back to North Bath and I wasn't expecting that.
1: Well, there were two things that I wasn't expecting. Um actually I I wasn't expecting Everybody's Fool. I mean, my I had I had no intention of writing a sequel to Nobody's Fool and then suddenly there I was doing it after more than more than two decades which which felt number one strange but also number two wonderful because i found that my affection for those characters had not gone away and having learned that lesson i think that's why it didn't take me nearly as long with the third to go back there because it was just so much fun hanging out with these these characters Including the ones that aren't there anymore in the second book, one of my favorite characters from the first book, miss burl has has died um, but she is a ghostly presence throughout that book, and I don't think it's much of a spoiler that in the third book, readers won't be surprised to learn that Sully has passed in the third book. We learn it you know on the first page or something like that, so he is gone now, but he has i think at least I hope, the same haunting presence um, in the third book that Miss Burl had in the second. And in both cases, it was just so much fun to be back in the company of these characters that I have lived with now for so, so long.
0: Three decades. You know, I remember reading Mohawk and The Risk Pool as a baby bookseller. Mm -hmm. Long, long time ago, because another baby bookseller had said, This guy is great. And we were in our very, like, when I say we were babies, we were very, very young. And I just remember thinking, This guy, how does he do it? How does he get the funny in there? But also, there's, you know, you don't shy away from anything, right? And I'm, it might be the New Englander in me, I don't know, but being able to laugh when you're just completely shocked by something that's going on. But, you know, you write about upstate New York mm. and you, you know, we can see this trajectory, right? From Mohawk to Rispel to Nobody's Fool. Mm. And I didn't know until I was sitting down doing some homework for this episode that your agent had said, you'd started writing the novel that becomes Straight Man, which is very, very funny. It's also the basis of the new series with Bob Odenkirk. But it was your agent who said, hey, wait a minute, let's create... Richard Russo world. Did you know when you sat down to write that you would end up basically building Russo's world, right?
1: Honestly, I was a little, I was a little bit afraid of it. One of the reasons that I wanted to write, um, I I actually sent him, as I recall, if memory serves, I sent Mm -hmm. him about 75 pages of straight man and 75 pages of Nobody's Fool. Okay. And he said, absolutely, go go with Nobody's Fool. Nobody wants to read about the internecine battles of of an English department. But but what worried me a little bit about that was that I think I was afraid of becoming a, quote, regional writer. Oh, okay. It's interesting how that works, because some some great writers um, who write very specifically to a particular region, never suffer for that. I mean, Faulkner is at once our most regional writer, and, and, and I think most people would agree uh, one of our most universal writers. On the other hand, um, I think there's, there are some writers and some wonderful writers who get pigeonholed as, as regional, and people don't recognize how universal they are. And the one that always comes to mind is one of my favorite of those of those writers gave me, I think, my very first blurb. And that was Howard Frank Mosher. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. Whose work I adore um, and continue to adore. But I think he is one of those writers who got pigeonholed as writing about northern Vermont in this area that he called lovingly the kingdom, which is on on the border uh, up there. And I don't think he ever got really the respect that he deserved for for just how universal the stories he's telling about that remote region were. So I think I was a little bit afraid of that. And I thought that with Straight Man, it would give me permission. If I was building a jail for myself, I wanted a key on the inside that I could (laughs) 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 click and and throw the doors open and turn around if I wanted to. And it was, it was only after, and I don't remember where or, or when exactly, but at some point, it became clear to me that that, that was not what was going to happen yeah. to me. That, that it was perfectly okay for me to return to Mohawk, to, um, to North Bath, to Empire Falls, any, any of those places that are, and they're all variations on the same place. right. You know right. I moved them up and I moved them up and down um the North way and over and and over into Maine and then back out of maine and and up up the North Way a little bit farther in in upstate new york. and And it's all been fine, but there was a time when I was not at all sure of me whether it was that it was going to be fine and it and it worked
0: right. No, I understand that. I mean, do we put Russell Banks and William Kennedy into that regional writers who didn't? I feel like William Kennedy had a moment where he was bigger than Albany. But that seems to have shifted a little bit, and same with Russell. But and both of them have died, and I think that
1: sometimes yeah.
0: changes yeah. how people interact with the work.
1: Right. I'm going to be talking with Bill later, later on, on on book tour. I'm I'm going to be at the New York State Writers Institute. I'll have to ask him that. Although it's a kind of it would kind of be kind of be a, a touchy question. Because I think of both of them as universal writers. I do too.
0: I do too. But I, yeah. I think that sometimes it's hard. It's really hard because they're covering some of the same terrain that you are, right? You write about class in a yeah. really exciting way that's also very loving and very yeah. smart-alecky. And I love the smart-alecky parts, right? Like your dialogue just pops. And I would hang out in North Bath first in a second because everyone has something to say. Even when you're like, oh, you just said that out loud. Oh, oh, (laughs) you just said that out. Oh, you did. Yeah. And I, again, like I grew up in New England around a lot of folks like this, right? And I just, I love that sort of witty. It's not just cocktail chatter, though. Like some people get a little funnier on the second gin and tonic, but and you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) But then you're charting this terrain, right? That isn't. Just upstate New York. It isn't just midcoast Maine. It really is like we could take these folks and kind of drop them in to any small town, right? Like this is something I think Francine Prose said this in the in the original review she did of Nobody's Fool in '93, right, where she's talking about how life is lived in public in North Bath, and I was like, oh, that is exactly the way to describe small town life. Like you kind of do know everyone's stuff, and you talk about it in Somebody's Fool, right, where there are rumors about the Sans Souci and Mm -hmm. the development of, and everyone's trying to confirm rumors with each other. And it's like, well, did you hear that? And no one really knows what's going on, but everyone thinks they
1: do. Right. I think that for, for me, the, the, the issue has always been class more than place because I mean, we've been talking here about charting a kind of geographical terrain and establishing a kind of ownership over a, over, over land, you know, it's like I have a deed or something to that, to this particular space in upstate New York that to a certain extent, I do share and overlap with Russell Banks and with, and with Bill Kennedy. What astonished me when I was um, a younger writer was that when I went on book tour and people would come up to me and, and they would say, oh, I know that place. I know it. I know it so well. You're writing about my small town. And then I would ask them where they're from, and they'd say, some would say Mississippi, some would say Oregon, some, <laughs> you know, they were from all over the United States. And in some cases, not even in the United States, because the same thing would happen when I was traveling, say, in the Midlands in, in England. Mm-hmm. I can say that. And I can people, totally say that. that. People would say, God, you're writing, you're writing about my town. And the only thing that I could come up with to exp- to explain that, Miwa, is if you get the class things right somehow, if you manage to get people's difficulties—whether their difficulties working or their difficulties in marriage, family, whatever whatever the stresses are um, in their lives—somehow or other that translates as place. It's not place, but that's how it that's how it translates. Don't ask me how that works. I only know does just from what people have said to me
0: right 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 and i absolutely absolutely i have been a bookseller for a really long time and it's always fascinating to me the way people conflate voice and character or place and well class i mean ultimately right like that's what the novel is you are covering time you're covering character like Yeah, it's just funny listening to people talk about their interpretations and what they bring, right? Everyone brings their own experience to whatever it is they're reading. And I have to say, watching Peter Sullivan go from the kid that we... So Donald Sullivan, played by Paul Newman, just to give some people a different reference point. Sully... In the first book has this kid, Peter, who is exactly the embodiment of everything we've just talked about. He's the one who wants to leave. He's mad at his background. He's mad at his dad. He's mad at where And he comes back and he stays. Mm-hmm. And his dad leaves him a note saying, here are the people you need to look after. And I mean, having met Peter in Nobody's Fool, I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. But the guy has soul. The guy's part of the community. It's great. See, it's so much fun to see. (laughs) He does. It's great. It is so good. And you give him a couple of moments, or maybe he just took them. I mean, I do want to talk about you and your characters and the relationship you have with them, especially when you're talking about working over 30 years, right, Mm -hmm. with these people and this community. And Peter, I'm, I'm going to hook on to Peter for a second, not just because he's Sully's kid, but because his arc, right, from the first book to this book is pretty spectacular. We're going to come back to Raymer, of course. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. let's start with Peter, because, I mean, he's the one whose career has gone off the rails. His marriage has gone off the rails and he builds a nice little life for himself in North
1: Bath, New York. He does. And and in some ways, I, I, I'd like to tie all of the things that we've been talking about so far too into, into something else, which is love. I, I'm just putting that out there now because of all of the characters in the first book, the one that I had the least affection for was Peter. <laughs> I believe it. Maybe, <laughs> I read that book. <laughs> maybe because he was the most autobiographical character mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And I think By the time I got to writing Nobody's Fool, I I had begun to understand Mm -hmm. that my own academic training, and I wouldn't even mention this, Miwa, except in terms of how it explains what I'm about to say about Peter. I always thought of my academic training as something that was going to free me up from this place that I was from, Gloversville, New York. My mother, God love her, her wish for me was to get me out of that out, out of that town and I took her view as as wisdom for for a very long time and I think between what she had to say about education and what I was experienced when I went all the way off to the University of Arizona back in 1967 I think that I understood education as the key to becoming a new me that would not be recognizable. And when people asked where I was from, I could somehow dodge, you know, both the geographical and the genetic bullets (laughs) that were whizzing, whizzing through the air. Yeah. And so I did, I did um, an undergraduate degree um, in English. I went on to do a master's degree then I went on to do a PhD in mm-hmm. English. And if that weren't enough, then I went back and did a, PA, uh, a I did an MFA in, in fiction writing. And I thought that what all of that was going to do was put me in the witness protection program, right? that I could, I could assume a new identity. And it was only about the time that I started writing Nobody's Fool that I'd become pretty um, disillusioned. With the me that I had become, the person that was that was was running away, that kind of plays into the fact that I don't like Peter very much because Peter too has has used his education as a kind of shield. As I was when I when I finished up all that academic work, I mean he's just cloaked in irony now. Yes. Where the rest of these people in this town are not—that's irony. There's no such thing as an ironic defense for Sully. Or Raymer, or any of the people that we've been following in this book, Peter, Peter alone has this defensive shield that education has has given him. And for a very, very long time, throughout all of these books, I really just did not like him. He was, it was like looking in the mirror at that person that I was at the age that he was when he, you know, he enters nobody's fool. Whereas the other people in the story, all of them. I was free to love them. How can you not love Rub?
0: You have to love Rub.
1: <laughs> Rub needs love. Rub
0: and Birdie yeah. and, you know, even Raymer. I mean, Raymer gets an arc.
1: Even the animals in the book. Rub the dog. Is <laughs> who who chews his dick. I mean, I, <laughs> how can you not love both rubs? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Just saying.
0: But it is, I mean... And Janie, oh man! Can I? Thank you for giving Janie an out. And yes, I'm being elliptical about this because this is going to air on update, and y'all can find out what I'm talking about. But I mean, there is a moment where you're like, "Oh, oh, we're back here." This, for me, is part of the pleasure of reading you, though. Is I get the laugh out loud, I get the smart Alex, I get the absolute feeling of love that the community has both from you, but for themselves. And then you don't leave out the ugly stuff. So I don't feel like I'm reading a fairy tale. Right. Right. Like I get, and I, I'm one of those readers who believes that, you know, everything exists sort of in a duality, right? Like it's easier to laugh when there's a little bit of horror because you're like, oh, well, I need a little relief because this is, this is a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's something, I mean, this is what I think of when I think of a novel by you or a short story by you is that, something will always happen that will make me laugh intentionally or not (laughs) (laughs) because it's you, (laughs) but you sit with who we are as people. Yeah. And sometimes that has to be a little hard. I think, you know, the character I'm talking about. Conrad. Yeah, sure. I'm going to use Conrad's first name so that when people encounter him, they can encounter. Right. Right. That's not a fun character to write, but he has a purpose and we do need him in the story and no. we've yeah. met him in real life.
1: Yeah. So yeah. when did he show up just to go back to something you said? I made it sound like when I was talking about about Peter and all of my education and the way that education gave me an ironic shield it makes me sound like I'm not terribly grateful for in many respects the wonderful education that I had all those years at the University of Arizona. And one of the things that I learned there through all of that reading is that if you're going to go to dark places which I've always yeah. wanted to do. Then you better go armed with humor. And I and I learned that reading Dickens and Twain. Yeah. In all of these books, um, I th- I think you go to some places that make your skin crawl. That's part of the life we live, the ugly, mm-hmm. the, the the ugliness and the beauty all ex- all exist on the same palette.
0: Right.
1: Sometimes, and sometimes not on even on opposite sides of the palette. They're on the same palette, and there's sometimes those colors, those colors are very, they're very close. Um, they're very close together, what I've always admired about twain and dickens and 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 writers um, who do this sort of thing is is exactly that magic about how you how you can be laughing hysterically at something that is profoundly serious and would be depressing thoroughly depressing if if in fact you weren't laughing um, and, and I mean it's what life gives us and, and You can't segregate those things. You can't can't have a a chapter that's dark and dirty and serious and then go into a lighthearted chapter. That that just makes makes the whole thing feel like you're living with a split personality or Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the author there if if you're toggling that way.
0: It feels manipulative. Yeah. I want to be part of the world. I don't want to be manipulated into feeling certain ways. I just, I want to be with these people. I mean, Great Expectations pops up a lot in this. So I'm really glad you mentioned yeah. Charles Dickens. Yeah, yeah, and didn't yeah. anyway. You know, and Everybody's Fool opens in the graveyard, which is, that is one of the best openings in recent fiction, the way you do that in Everybody's Fool. But I do want to come back to Dickens for a second, because you do have this moral center, right? In all of your books, there is a moral center. And sometimes it's a little fuzzy and a little gray. Hello, Sully. I'm thinking of you. Like... There were so many moments in this book when you're saying he haunts somebody's fool. He certainly does. I mean, we've got characters sort of wondering out loud, what would Sully do? But at the same time, I'm wondering what Sully would do, because I'm seeing his legacy through the other characters. I'm seeing his legacy through Ruth, and I'm seeing it through Rub, and I'm seeing it through Peter. And it's kind of... Certainly, Birdie. I mean, to know that you still have this sort of moral core with a a slightly raised eyebrow too, because it's selling, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, we got to give the guy. But again, we come back to luck versus fate, right? I mean, North Bath is being absorbed into (laughs) Skyler (laughs) Springs. North Bath is about to be no more. Exactly. And you and I have seen this happen before, right? Like, you live in a certain part of the country, and it's not just New England, but like there's certain bands of the country where you know a bigger township just says. Hey, you know what? You can't do this anymore. We're just going to, we're going to take. Yeah. And what happens to the people?
1: Yeah. And in this book, you, you learn a certain, uh, to a certain extent, um, not just with the main characters, but you learn when North Bath is no more. Um, there are a lot of people who used to live there who are now going to have to move farther and farther out. They're going to have to, they, can't, they already couldn't afford to live in Schuyler Springs. Now they can't afford to live in Bath. So now they're going to have to go geographically. Farther, farther, into the hinterlands, mute into, into, into these places that they were once that they were once part of the fabric of this place, and now that fabric has been torn. I see that happening all the time. I'm, yeah. We're talking now. I'm I'm living um, I'm living now in Portland, Maine. My wife and I moved into this place several years ago. We had a four story townhouse on the other side of of town. Okay. Uh, and we moved here because it was obvious to I'm 73 shortly to be 74. And it became clear that that um, uh, my wife had a fall on the front steps when it was icy. I had a fall going down going down the stairs um, with a pot of spaghetti sauce, <laughs> a broken ankle. And we thought, you know, let's let's move now while while we want to instead of when we have to. So we bought a much smaller place um, uh, it's all on one floor, but, but it's on top of um, what's called the Eastern Promenade in, 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 uh, uh, in Portland. And we look out over um, a part of Portland that, since we moved here, has just become richer and richer. I used to, I used, I play racquetball with a guy who, um, and he's just a couple years younger than I am. Who who um who tells me that when he was growing up, his parents wouldn't let him cross this Main Street, Franklin Street, which leads up onto the hill that I now live on because yeah. it's dangerous. Yeah. Now you can't afford to live there, and it's and it's becoming even it's becoming even more um moneyed. There's a brand new subdivision that's being built, kind of at the bottom of the hill that looks out on all the expensive yachts that come in and the in the summer. If you are um, a teacher, a policeman, a fireman, if you're doing any kind of absolutely essential work in the city of Portland, I can almost guarantee that you cannot go anywhere near the peninsula that you work on every day. You cannot find a place to live there. You are going to be in the outskirts somewhere. So this is and this is another thing that I've that's been important to to my fiction, because I've just seen it happen. I continue yeah. to see it happen all the time. The most essential people to the fabric of our society are being torn away from from that fabric. And that's not a good thing. And, I, and I, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting on a soapbox about it here because this is America and this is what's happening here under, on our watch. And this is what
0: art is supposed to reflect, right? Our art is supposed to show us who we are and where we're going and the mistakes we're making, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's, I mean, again, this is part of why I love your work and especially the North Bath novels, certainly. But I mean, this idea that you can be part of a community and recognize a world that isn't necessarily yours, right? Like you've talked about this before and lots of writers have too, that writing a novel is an act of empathy. Right. And, and one of the things I keep, okay. My tiny bookseller soapbox is, you know, reading isn't, it's an act of communion. It's an act of community, right? Like it's an act of connection. It is a physical act. It's not just a Mm -hmm. like sitting in the corner, la, 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 I'm reading a story kind of thing. Like we need to be speaking to each other and this is one of the ways we can do it. And I just, and that's one of the things I really appreciate when I'm reading your work is that I'm so deep into it and there, there are details that I recognize and there are details from like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. But I never lose sight of the character's humanity. And so when you're going back to something like North Bath, right, you're not just starting with the idea of this is where we are in the world, right? You chose very selectively who came back in this book. And I sort of feel like you're setting up a fourth book, but I'm going to Wait, <laughs> I feel like you set up, I, I really feel like you set up a fourth book and I'm just crossing my
1: fingers and toes
0: that that might happen.
1: But one, one, when, when we're not on camera anymore, okay. you're going to have to tell me what you think, what you think I'm, I'm setting you up for, because I'm not averse to a fourth. I, I've i I've kind of sworn okay. to people that, that there would not be a fourth book, but that's only because I can't figure out. If you know where it's going, I, think
0: I you get you I really think you did. I'm sorry. I really think you did. And we will do it off camera. But I really think, no, I, there's a very sort of clear through line and it does come back to Sully. It absolutely comes back to Sully, mm. and I just, and I think you can do it. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm very excited by the idea, but I do, I want to go back to this community because watching this, like Rub has four jobs. Mm-hmm. Rub has four jobs. And once upon a time, right, you could be a mailman and have your family and your house and your vacations and your car and all of this you didn't have to have the fanciest job in the world. You had a nice job. You were part of your community. Your kids went to school in the community. Your kids learned some cool stuff. Maybe they stayed, maybe they left. And a lot of people did leave, unfortunately. And it's like, we're in this position. Have you ever read the writer, Sarah Smarsh? Did you ever read Heartland? No. So she went back to Kansas and she grew up on what was considered a small family farm in Kansas. And she left and she came back. Mm -hmm. And she's working on a new book that... I'm so excited for, and I'm not supposed to have details about it yet. So I'm just going to sit quietly in the corner and make you wait for it. No, no, it's just you and I here. Yeah, yeah. But if you have a chance, Heartland, I think you of all people would really. And it's also
1: I, I, I've it's just very made short a note about that book. It's
0: it's very short, but she's very voicey. But the way she writes about her community in Kansas, her farming community in Kansas, is not dissimilar to the way you write about mm-hmm. upstate New York or even Maine. And I have to giggle a little bit because I know sort of that whole Bath corridor in Maine and every time I think of North Bath I'm like right it's New York. <laughs> I do I do have to stop for just a second and do that no we're in New York right we're in New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but can we talk about characters and how you chose to center
1: somebody's fool? And who you chose to say. Well, I mean, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that decides um, who, is, who is going to come back and who is going to be vital to the story is how much in the last book of that character's arc was resolved and how, right. much, and how much danger they're in. Okay. Now, Janie, for instance, who I just, I, I had so much fun writing her in this book, her relationship to her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, was just thrilling for me in this yeah. book because I thought at the end of the last book that maybe her, maybe, maybe her story didn't have an awful lot of flexibility to it anymore. I mean, her anger at her mother was so, yeah. her fury at Ruth was so overwhelming that, that I didn't immediately see where it could go. You were saying that, that, that each book, it has to be a study in empathy when you're, when you're mm-hmm. dealing with, with these characters, and I'm always suspicious when, when I come across like Janie, who I think who I think of in my mind as from the end of everybody's fool as kind of fixed because we're not fixed. we are under stress, and you can only make the same mistake so many times before before it dawns on you maybe I'm maybe I'm doing something wrong here, <laughs> maybe I need to re- rethink some fundamental things. And so Janie was a was a character that once that once that dawned on me that I could refocus um, on on her and Ruth and I always loved Ruth and Ruth was so valuable in this book because she's the one who keeps needling Peter mm-hmm. about his own about his own blind spots and, and so the characters who are in, who are important here in the Peter story. And in the Raymer, um, in the, <laughs> in the story, get chosen because they have something vital yeah. to give in this in this larger in this larger arc. And in the we haven't talked about Raymer very much. Oh,
0: we're coming to him because. Oh, we're coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we are coming to him. Well, then we then we get a chance to talk about Jerome too, because yes. Because um, here's a character from, from, the, f- from um, the first um, novel yeah. uh, and the second novel who was important, but in the beginning, at, at, at the beginning of this novel, I didn't really think would be important in this novel at all. And then suddenly there he was. And I thought, oh, my God, Jerome is in the center of this. I th- He's I th- excellent. I thought he was off somewhere. We we sent him packing. You did. You did. You of, totally in did. The, in one of the other books, we sent him packing. <laughs> and I suddenly, remember. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly there he is yeah. offering exactly, exactly what Raymer needs yeah. and exactly what Sharice needs. Who do you choose? Well, who, who do you need? <laughs> who, who do you, who do you, who do you need for this story? to be as, as fully people as it, as it can possibly yeah. be.
0: But also you write about friendship between men in a way that not a lot of writers choose to or can't. I don't know. But you write about men's friendship in such a vital, loving way. And you give these men language. They have a way of seeing each other And being able to be smart alecky guys, right? Like super guys with each Mm -hmm. other. All right. Someone ends up living upstairs at Peter's house, which is also Sully's house. And I'm going to let you find out who that person is. The whole setup there is great. And and certainly Rub is not doing well when we first see him. Rub the human is not doing (laughs) very well (laughs) (laughs) when we first see him. But Peter actually shows up for Rub. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't necessarily see that coming. Peter has a fantastic, there's there's a moment towards the end where Peter really shows up. And my note, because I destroy galleys, I write all over galleys and whatnot. I dog ear things, I'm terrible to galleys. And my note just says, finally, comma, Peter, exclamation <laughs> <laughs> point. <laughs> and I think you know, he's in a room with two other men and he's really giving them the business. And it's great to see. And you're just like, oh, oh, this is kind of who, peter is meant to be because he gets to pull on that education and he gets to pull on that sort of i'm going to use this to be a little bulletproof it is a little snotty but it works because also they are bad dudes and they deserve to have someone be snotty of them because no one else is snotty
1: yeah it it also gives peter's mother yeah sully's sully's ex-wife it gets for her to re-enter the novel too, because because even even those of us who think of ourselves as our mother's daughter or our father's son, it's never that simple. And in this particular moment, what Peter needs in that police station is not help from his mother. He is not help from his father. No. It's to channel his mother. Yes. At, and he <laughs> does.
0: At, oh, he at, does. At,
1: and he seems and he seems to recognize that. Yeah. And the most fun I've ever had, I think, with that, with this, this whole idea of of male friendships and and how unusual they can be, especially since men, I think, are not great talkers about friendship. They're not. No, they <laughs> are not. They're not great talkers at all. <laughs> and so, yeah, finding finding a finding a language for them to communicate when so many of them are just taciturn and, and don't and don't really believe in words to begin with. I'm my. Previous novel, chances are, yeah. that's a story of three friends whose friendship have has endured over um, over a period of five of five decades. Yep, yeah. and what and and what is that? And all three of them are trying to do what many of the characters in this book are trying to do is trying to decide: Am I my mother's son? Am I my father's son? When I do the wrong thing, who am I upsetting? Am I upsetting my father? Am I upsetting my mother? And those are just incredibly fruitful. I mean, this, I, I think of this book as a, as a book about reckoning. This is all about genetics,
0: mm-hmm. what
1: we cannot, what we have not, <laughs> oh, yeah. which as we, as we, if you live long enough and you learn that there's certain things you don't, <laughs> you don't escape no matter how hard you try. It's about genetic rec- reckoning. It's about the reckonings that come about in marriage. It's everything.
0: But also Jerome and Raymer's friendship is pretty um, excellent. It is. And again, it's, it's one of the heartbeats. It's one of the really big heartbeats in somebody's fool is this friendship between good old Raymer, good old yeah. Doug Raymer. Foolish. now oh. as, as he, as he has ever been. But, but learning and struggling. And trying. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. Raymer actually wants to learn. He does. And Jerome is kind of like, you know what? I know I'm a mess. I know I'm a mess, but so are you. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know you're a mess. Right. And the friendship that the two of them have is just wonderful because I never would have expected it. Raymer makes it pretty clear that he doesn't think a lot of Jerome. And ultimately Jerome
1: is exactly
0: who he needs.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. So good, this friendship. If somebody asked me what's what's the big love story in this book? Oh, it's the two of them.
0: It is their friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, it it's, is their, it's their friendship. Protect-
1: it's to protect Raymer's, Raymer's still very loving, beautiful relationship with Jerome's sister, Charisse. But Charisse, in some respects, has to go offstage a little bit yeah. in this novel so that this other love story can take place. Because, other, because I think without it, that they're not married, but I think that relationship does not survive this book without Jerome.
0: I agree. I, I do. Like it, obviously it was building throughout everybody's fool. I absolutely see where you were going with that. But I mean, when Jerome just showed up, I was like, Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the man eats his chicken wings with a knife and a fork. I know. <laughs> Only you can get away with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's such a yeah. nice detail.
1: Yeah. It's
0: such an, and it's exactly yeah. what Jerome would do. And then obviously with yeah. his omelet and, and there's a lot, Also, I'm not making light of Durham. There's a lot going on there as well. But the idea that he and Raymer can have this loving friendship Mm -hmm. and ultimately save each other should not be overlooked. It should not. And again, this is what you do, though. It's this balancing act between the laugh out loud and the humor. And it's so hard. Why is it so hard to talk about humor and being funny on the page? Like, it's just hard. Like, you kind of just know it when you see it. And humor is subjective. There's all of this stuff about humor that makes it hard to talk about. And yet yeah. you just kind of do it.
1: You're just like, here we well, go. I remember being asked at least once, but, but um, you know, somebody, uh, an interviewer, maybe when I was on book tour or, or somebody in the audience, I don't know, just said, would say, how do you make things so funny? And my response to that probably sounded glib. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it to, I mean it from the, from the bottom of my heart. I don't think I ever make anything funny. It's the way I see things. Mm-hmm. I just see Jerome being far too fastidious. Mm-hmm. His, his OCD is simply will not allow him to pick up a chicken wing. Yep. Yeah. Now I'm not making that funny. That's just Jerome. If if it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know a writer is who he is or who she is, mm-hmm. uh on the basis of what they see twice. right? We all see things. What's important to writer A versus writer B is that even if we see uh, the same things, some of us see half of those things twice. And the fact that we see them the second time is who we are. And because we recognize what I'm seeing right now will be valuable to me. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not this decade. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when I, wrote, when I wrote Straight Man and Hank Devereaux is walking around the duck pond yep. um, and <laughs> with, with the dean of faculty, the <laughs> yeah. dean of faculty is trying to explain to him that it's the same thing every year. The legislature won't give him his money until they give him his money. He can't hire his adjuncts, which makes them crazy with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Every year it's the same thing, and yet there's nothing he can do about it. And he says, what am I going to do? Threaten to kill a duck. There's a duck wandering by. And he says, what am I going to do? Threaten to kill a duck a day until they give me my money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was well over a decade before I used that. Between the time that my friend Cal said that <laughs> And the time that I used it, I saw that I heard what he said and, and, and I don't think I consciously stashed it away. Right. But something, something in, something in this bizarre head of mine recognized that as something that would be valuable sometime. And then lo and behold, just a brief decade later, <laughs> there it was.
0: I'm also thinking of Raymer and the garage door opener because apparently yeah. someone had told you a garage like someone yes. driving around with a yes. and yes. I was like, wait a minute.
1: I sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. I mean yeah. the idea of someone, someone did Raymer no, someone, someone yeah. did. And it was a, it was in the small town where I was living. Somebody, a cop, was going around, was convinced that his wife was having a was having an affair right? and yeah. went around just to see where the <laughs> what, what her remote, what garage door her, her remote would open. Now that's, I mean, I'm not, that's, I'm not making that funny. That's funny. That is,
0: it is just <laughs> funny. It really is just funny.
1: But how much of the writing is rewriting for you?
0: I mean, it seems to me that you spend quite a lot of time and you've even said this, like your old editor, Gary Fiskajan, you, you yes. would fight over commas with him at the sentence level and all of this. But it seems to me that even before you were working with Gary, that's just how you were programmed as a writer. That is just a piece of your craft. That is very specific to you. So, can we talk about that for a second? The rewriting piece. Absolutely.
1: It is the writing, the mm-hmm. rewriting. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I understand Jerome's OCD mm-hmm. as well as I do is that there's a there's a deep strain of that that runs through my family, and I've written about that in elsewhere and and in other things. But um, yeah, I have that strain in me too. And I think it I, I, and I think it manifested very early before I started before I had much experience working with great editors like like um like gary this this idea of never never being able to leave a sentence alone, turning it around, turning it back around, adding this taking that taking that out, getting it I won't say perfect but but is when I realized I can't do anything else with it. And, it, and it, my mother's world was made, um, was made very small by the, by the end of her life because she was, she was had manifested all the signs of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. She would look at the room that she was sitting in um, and it was her room and, and something would be off about it. And she, she, she had shelves full of knickknacks and, and she would go over and, and move one, just a, just a hair's breadth, and then maybe another hair's breadth, and then go back and sit down and it wouldn't be right. And she'd get up and she'd have to move it again. It was like there was, it was like there was a shadow on the on the on the bookcase or on the flat surface. Um, there was a shadow there that showed in her mind where the where this thing should rest. This little down, you know, where should it, where should it rest? And until until she until she got it right, she couldn't be happy sitting down in her chair. And that was and that and that was um, something that made her life really. Um, I mean, you can't live that way. F- no, forever. No, it's true. I found a way to turn that same mechanism in, mm-hmm. in my brain into something that was actually valuable for me, which was to was direct, was, was to fiddle just to, just to be content.
0: Right.
1: Fiddle with sentences un- until until they got until they got better, as close to perfect as I could make them. I mean, I talk to writers all the time who think that that's the business of their editor and their copy editor. To oh, make, really? To make the sentences right, mm-hmm. is, is, is to make them as perfect as they can. They come to that conclusion much too quickly. There's, <laughs> there is more work that they can do if they're, if they're willing to get really cranky about this and, and keep turning those sentences around. And don't, don't, don't leave it to the copy editor they've got enough work to do. This is true. This (laughs) is true.
0: But also I do feel like, and I've, you know, yeah, I'm one of those lifelong reader people, Mm -hmm. but at the same time too, like you learn over time, right? You do. Mm -hmm. And I sort of feel like I'm just, actually, I don't sort of feel like I'm happier when I'm reading a book that I know has been stripped down to the sentence level. Yeah. I just, there's, I just, I get more pleasure from the characters. I get more pleasure from the voice. Also, you set everything in Everybody's Fool and Somebody's Fool in 48 hours, which, are you trying to walk that tightrope just because you can? Or is it just, it gives you more to do as a writer and keeps you sort of
1: a little more on your toes, I think. The vast majority of my books are set. I mean, all of the Fool books, they're all set. They're all 48 hours, right? All set over a 48-hour period. That old okay, Cape Magic is also set over a weekend. Um, I won't go through all of them. Yeah. but but I love to, but I love to restrict time like that.
0: Yeah, okay. Wait, Empire Falls, though, I feel Empire like Empire Falls is
1: set over um a longer period of time than okay. Like okay. that. But there are flashbacks um and, and all of that, which take you out of that, um, take you out of that tight framework. But I think the re- but I think the dirty little secret of, of my <laughs> Of my setting so many books over just a day or a couple days, a weekend, or something like that, the the dirty little secret of why I do that, slowing time down that way, is that it forces me to do everything in scene. Oh, There's okay. Very little narration. Because I set everything in scene, that puts a premium on dialogue, first of all. getting. People to talk to each other. When you, slow do, when you slow time down and you're in scene all the time, that places a great premium on what people say and do, right? As opposed to what yeah. they think and as opposed to the summarizing of time that allows you to say, all right, nothing happened this year, so we'll skip ahead to next year yeah. or the next decade or, or, or whatever, which puts more of a premium on summarizing um, place and summarizing what characters are are thinking, narrowing the window down. And it puts a premium on the things that I have that that I don't do quite as well, which is narration, summarizing summarizing time, Mm. and spending an enormous amount of time in my characters' heads. I like to learn who they are and what they're thinking about from what they say and the Mm -hmm. way they say it. By constricting time that way, it forces me into scene, which is the very thing that I love to do.
0: Which is how we get a Rick Russo novel. Okay. Which is, it's very cool. I mean, listening to you say all of that, I'm like, oh, yeah. Now I can now I can see sort of more of the behind the scenes piece of it a little bit. And I also knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to hit time. But before I let you go, because we didn't even get to Richard Yates and 11 Kinds of Loneliness which is oh, a story okay. collection I love. And I know you've done the introduction to the collection story. You know, we might do a whole
1: set. One, one of the reasons that I am a writer or the writer uh-huh. I am is Richard Yates. I think Richard, okay. I was in graduate school back in the seventies. Everybody was reading the more um, experimental writers. Yeah. Uh, and it was the Richard Yates's of the world who who was living in the kind of world that I wasn't sure I could make serious fiction out of, and it was Richard Yates and Eleven Kinds of Loneliness and and all of his work, really, that mm-hmm. that taught me that I could write about people like he wrote about, yeah, and make literature out of it, yeah. I w- at that point, I was still, I mean, I, I had a PhD already at that point, and I was still I was still too stupid to realize that that could be done. Even more than Raymond Carver, I think yeah. Yates taught me that. And 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 in some ways, Carver was writing more about the kinds of people that I write about. But it was <laughs> Yates who gave me permission to be the writer that I turned out to be.
0: Which I think is pretty great. But I love the melding, right, of the practical experience and the yeah. academic and the way you brought them together and created yeah. you on the page, right? Like <laughs> you on the page is a very kind of specific reading experience. And it's very great. <laughs> it's really wonderful. I know your work when I see it. And I love being able to say I can recognize right away when I'm reading something by you, and you know you don't always get to say that, so it's kind of fun.
1: Well, no, you don't, and 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 I think that um, I think you might be the same kind of reader that that I am. Is that you know I I find a certain comfort mm-hmm. picking up a Dickens novel because I'm. It's not like he's writing the same novel all the time. They're right. all. They're all different, but I know I'm in Dickens' world when I, when I pick up a Dickens novel or, or a Twain novel. Some of that has to do with voice. Some of it, I don't know what it has to do with. But I, but I like recognizing the world that I'm, that I'm in. It doesn't worry me that it's going to be the same book over again. I just recognize that I'm in good hands.
0: Yes. And that's exactly, exactly what we get with Somebody's Fool and all of the other books. And I'm still hoping that there's a fourth. Sorry. I'm you still have, hoping that we have, get a fourth. Tell me what's it. <laughs> I don't know. That feels like stepping totally out of bounds, but I can see
1: the threads. <laughs> you, have, you have my email address. Make use of it. <laughs>
0: Richard Russo, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Somebody's Pool is out now. And if somehow you haven't, read, there are, what, 16 other books? Starting with Mohawk? Something like that, yeah. Okay, yeah. and there's an essay collection, and there's a memoir. You could spend a whole summer with Richard Russo, you know. And you could take him to the beach. So, anyway, on that note, Richard, thank you so much for joining
1: us. <laughs> it's been a blast. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Lord Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.